Hey everyone, Corey DeVos here, and thanks for joining us for yet another episode of The Ken Show. I'm joined, as always, by my very good friend and mentor, Ken Wilber. Ken, how you doing, man? Good, buddy. Great to good. see you. Yeah, it's great to see you. You know, uh, just before the show, we were talking about um, just how awesome last month's episode was, where we went through the, uh, the major and minor scales of your integral politics model. Right. And man, I mean, it was, we spent three and a half hours unpacking that. And, um, you know, I just find that I'm thinking about it every day. I'm still unpacking it throughout the month. And, you know, I, I'm the type of person who consumes a lot of political news. And it is amazing how helpful that, that discussion was for me. Um, you know, there's, there's so many things, so many sort of takeaways, I think, that I and hopefully our viewers, um, you know, had around that piece um, you know, for one, I think it was such a, an incredible uh, interpretive frame that really helps us make better sense of, you know, where we're at today and where right. we've been and where we might actually be able to go from here, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, it helps me see how these, how these, you know, sort of political and governmental dynamics are actually playing themselves out in real time. Um, you know, and I think more than anything, it's, it's helped me sort of resist my own kind of slide into one kind of tribalism or another just by, you know, simply acknowledging that there, guys, there really is no such thing as a monolithic left over there and a monolithic right over there. I mean, these are all, you know, again, broad coalitions of different views and values that are all sort of vying for control of our major political parties. And I, I, I think that, you know, the conversation that we had just really helps us, um, expand our vocabulary a bit, see a few things that we weren't really able to notice before, and, and hopefully will help, you know, these kinds of conversations actually, you know, find just a little bit more traction um, in this world. And because it's, you know, becoming increasingly clear to me, Ken, that um, <laughs> this world really needs these conversations. Um, so I was thinking today, yeah, we would, we would basically pick off where we, you know, pick up where we left off last month, um, continue the discussion. Um, we did such a great job of sort of getting all the, the pieces on the chessboard. Now we get to actually move those pieces around and, you know, have a little bit of fun together. Right. Um, and before we, you know, started with the big questions, I thought maybe we would spend a little time and actually talk about, you know, what is, what is sort of the current condition of the chessboard itself? Um, so, you know, I was thinking maybe we could do basically like a quick reality check. I, I, I just, I just want to see if, you know, you see what I see because, you know, what I see, Ken, is this really, really rapid emergence of what's basically an entire new set of life conditions, a new set of, you know, global challenges and realities that have never existed before. And I think that these, these changing life conditions are what's really... Um, demanding an integral response and integral solutions and new sort of integral strategies of, of, of self-organization. Um, you know, as we often say, actually anything less than integral at this point in the game is, is really just going to make things worse. Yeah. And partial solutions that create, you know, an even, even bigger mess. Um, you know, and in terms of these life conditions, you know, I, I see it just everywhere. I see it all around us. Uh, it really in all four quadrants, you know, there's, there's the ticking time bomb of, of climate change. And we've been getting a lot of really scary reports 
uh, coming out in, in recent weeks being like, guys, hey, you know, you've, you've got 10, 10 years to figure this out, maybe, if we're lucky, um, to do, you know, basically a moonshot type, you know, set of solutions to, to help mitigate the damage that we're inflicting to our climate and therefore to our, you know, long, long-term sustainability on this planet. There's the prevalence of, of plutocracy and, you know, this, this historically significant, historically huge uh, wealth inequality that we're struggling with right now. We've got, you know, things that we've discussed in previous episodes. We've got the rise of social media and the polarization and the balkanization of culture that's, that's come out of that. We've got this sort of systemic regression towards things like nationalism and populism that we're seeing all throughout the West. We're seeing this uh, epistemic collapse of the post-truth world, uh, the violent inflammation of all, you know, first-tier stages, which is itself a result of, you know, kind of a, a total breakdown of, of the developmental conveyor belt, which is, you know, resulting in even larger, wider, deeper gaps and divisions between all of us. Um, and, you know, when I sort of list it all out like that, it sounds, you know, it sounds really daunting and even, even a little bit depressing. And, you know, I, th I, I, I think it is daunting and it is depressing. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, you know, we've been talking about this years. And, and in so many ways, this is all kind of arriving right on schedule, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, I think more importantly, what it means is that, you know, I think the stage is actually being set for integral ideas and integral solutions to, to, to begin actually finding, again, some real traction in the world in a way that we've never really, you know, been able to see in the past. Um, yeah, I think human beings, we've, been, we've proven to ourselves time and time again just how terrible we are at seeing the problem and coming up with a proactive set of solutions to, you know, to try to mitigate the problem. We're really bad at that. But what we're good at, what we're really, really good at is adapting. You know, whenever, whenever our realities and our life conditions just change from underneath our feet, we adapt and we do. We find these new patterns of self-organization that are more efficient, more sustainable, just, just better in most ways than, than what we had before. But it's like you, you, kind of, you need the challenge in order to, to, you know, for that to really begin to emerge and hit sort of the tipping point that we really want to see these things eventually hit. And keep in mind that um, it's, it's sort of one of the standard things to do when we worry about what's happening tomorrow is we focus on all of these negative things and you can really pile them up mm -hmm. um, and integral uh, in a sense gives you a large number of tools to find even more things going wrong <laughs> you know more dimensions that people don't take into account and you go oh well you think that's bad look at this thing um, so so that can start to become uh, pretty overwhelming when you do that. But you and I have also talked about the fact that there's a type of revolution occurring in all four quadrants. And uh, although you can never tell which way innovations go, um, the assumption is at least some of them are headed in very, very positive 
And so if we look in the upper right quadrant, just the work that's been done on genomics, for example, I mean, we are very, very close to wipe out genetic illnesses entirely. Um, there's already a renegade Chinese scientist that's used CRISPR, the gene editing technology, to actually change a human zygote, put it in a human being who's going to have that child and start reproducing that edited gene. Uh, the entire world is alarmed by that, uh, but that's the direction that we're, that we're going. Um, and that could have enormous positive consequences. One of the things that it's very likely going to do is increase average lifespan well into the hundreds. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I've always said is, well, if that actually happens, um, first of all, I have to figure out how to pay for it. Um, but second of all, what would people actually end up doing? I mean, even if you, you know, retired at 80, what would you do for the next 80 years? I mean, you've only lived half your life. And sort of one of the utopian ideas about that as well, one of the few areas that people could explore that they hadn't explored before was their own interior uh, developmental awakening and states of enlightenment, metamorphosis, satori, moksha, uh, etc. And so people would actually have the time uh, and they might not be bored senseless uh, for other stuff they can do. So they, they are pursuing that. Um, if we look at what's happening with robotics, if we look at, at what's happening um, with artificial intelligence itself, we're almost certainly headed quickly towards um, augmented humans. Hmm. And that's going to change things profoundly. And one of the things that's going to depend upon whether this change is positive and in a positive feedback loop or whether it gets in a really negative feedback loop and, and drives us right into the ground. Um, but part of the idea is going to be, um, okay, we have this augmented reality and we can plug directly into um, the entire internet, uh, the entire cloud, and have all of that information available to us in our own awareness anytime we want it. So the question at that point really does become, okay, what values do society set on mm. those types of information? And that's one of the things that an integral approach can help with doing because it acknowledges pretty much all values, but it also sets them in a framework where they're oriented to each other and you can actually see certain priorities and priorities with like say developmental stages, it's always in one direction. It's towards more inclusion, more diversity, more perspectives. It's never the other way. The higher you go in a growth hierarchy, it's not the more people you oppress, it's people you include. And mm. the higher stage on a growth hierarchy includes more perspectives and more people. Whereas on dominator hierarchies, 
each higher stage you go, the more people you can oppress and right. dominate and all that. And unfortunately, most postmodernists have confused those two and thrown them both out. And so that's a disaster. But these types of profound changes in augmented humanity are coming. They're coming in the upper right quadrant. It's going to be a profound sort of type of revolution. Mm -hmm. um, again, not to mention just the actual physiology of, of continuing cell growth so that a lifespan really does start to get to be 100, 200, 300 years. And uh, we have no idea what to do with that. Um, in the lower right quadrant, uh, um, Kurzweil's overall singularity. Um, I mean, that's coming this way, whether you agree with exactly Kurzweil's version of it or not. Right. Um, technological innovation does continue to proceed at an exponential rate. So it's only a matter of time before absolutely off the wall, outrageous types of learning machines start to come into being. And the, again, the best thing we can do with that is use it to augment humanity and not simply start supplanting or even replacing humanity, which are, as you know, a fair number of technologists think will happen. Uh, as one put it, the first time that we create a super intelligent machine, that will be the thing that we create. Right. Um, but given the sort of positiveness of what can happen in the, in the lower right quadrant in terms of what a, a truly enhanced uh, artificial intelligence could bring, um, we're also in the, uh, an unfortunate transition where for a very large percentage of people, particularly in the lower middle class to middle class, um, technology has displaced an enormous number of jobs right now. We expect at some point it will start creating new types of jobs, but we're between those two worlds right now. Mm -hmm. And one study even showed that uh, over the last uh, 20 years or so, about 80% of jobs that were lost were lost due to uh, automation. So it, it, this is hurting. Yeah. Um, but it's still on balance um, has to be counted as at least having some sort of potential positive contributions that we're not really quite sure of right now. In the lower left, the idea is that we are slowly moving towards, certainly in the developed countries, stages of cultural development that are starting to push into integral second tier. And that's going to be um, a cultural singularity, that's going to be a cultural transformation, the likes of which we've never seen, ever. Um, and so um, that's way latest estimates put it that it could happen roughly as soon, that is to say that getting a 10% tipping point at second tier can happen roughly about the same time 
that the technological singularity is supposed to occur. So somewhere around 2040, 2050, um, we could see both of these things happening. And that would be a change in the cultural lower left meaning systems and a change in the techno economic infrastructure occurring at the same time, along with the continuing gains in the upper right. So this could start to be really stunning. And then the upper left, we have this increasing um, understanding and desire also of types of awareness that, that move into both second tier in growing up and an increasing awareness at some degree of the fact that we also have things like waking up and those are very important. So all of these factors are on table with all of these negative factors. Yep. Um, and part of the difficulty, I mean, as you point out, uh, humans don't have a very good history of seeing a problem coming and then addressing it <laughs> so that they wore it off the problem. Uh, almost always they see the problem coming, they wait, the problem hits and devastates them, and then they build their way out of the mess. I used to joke and say the only guy in history who actually fixed the problem before it was Noah. <laughs> he actually saw the thing coming, actually built the solution and survived. <laughs> the only time I've ever heard humanity doing that. So uh, we're not good at that. It does suggest that we, um, of all these positives and then negatives, that it most likely, not necessarily, but most likely might be something bad happening on the negative side of the street that forces some sort of organization of what we're doing. And all of this is indeed in the backdrop of a civilization that, however we define it, is in some ways becoming more and more global. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it wasn't really that long ago before we even started talking about something like the global village. It was like, wow, is that, yeah, that was really happening. And that was news to mm -hmm. a lot of people. It, it, it really been 30 or 40 years when we started to actually think in those kinds of terms. But, happening is that, as we pointed out last time, we do have this um, economic system that as it increasingly becomes transnational, deals across borders, um, starts to take on seriously global dimensions. Whereas the virtually all of the regulators, regulators that we have are at level of nation state or mm -hmm. even earlier. And so we're having a, a, a really difficult time coming up with ways that any form of government can regulate what's going on uh, globally. So we have things like the United Nations and, and so on, and they attempt to try 
but everybody realizes that's a pretty hobbled system. Um, it runs into the standard problem that you get when you look at today's thought leaders or the essential sort of cultural leaders. An enormous number of them are at um, green. And again, it's a broken green. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, even that language has been adopted by the terrorists. I mean, terrorists talk boomeritis. It's like, oh, we're doing this for our freedom. We're doing this for our self-expression. We're doing this because we're being true to ourselves. Um, and that, that they'll have a better chance in the press doing talking something like that. And so it worked. I mean, the press still has, if you say anything bad about an Islamic terror, anything, then you have Islamophobia and, and you're a racist. Um, so it's, it's bizarre uh, in, in terms of how that's turning out. And, you know, Ken, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, how do I want to say this? These developmental stages, they often come before the world really needs them, right? I mean, we've had integral thinkers like yourself for the last 40 years, you know, doing your work. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, you've been a pioneer and you've been sort of laying down this groundwork before these life conditions, I think, really started uh, manifesting in, in as powerful of a way as they are today. So in, in a lot of ways, you know, you're ahead of your time. And in, and in certain ways, you're, again, sort of right on schedule. But this has been true, you know, all throughout. It's, you know, the first postmodern thinkers didn't emerge, you know, in the 1960s. They emerged in the early 20th century and, you know, enjoyed a status that Roger Walsh, Roger Walsh called a, a cognitive minority. In a lot of ways, I think that's the same status that, you know, us integralists have have you know, been enjoying for the last couple of decades. We've been a, a cognitive minority, but I kind of get the sense that things could change, you know, pretty quickly and pretty radically in, in sort of the decades to come. And another really interesting thing about these life conditions as they're presenting themselves today is I think there's, I think there's something going on here that's a little bit unprecedented historically. And that is, you know, all the previous stages as they emerged, they were largely emerging in reaction to the disasters of the previous stage. So, you know, green emerged in response to, you know, the disasters of orange. And orange emerged in response to the disasters of amber and sort of, you know, on it goes. I think that with integral, it's, it's actually taking shape a little bit differently. Um, you know, it, it seems to me anyway, I'm curious to know what you think about this, but it seems to me that, you know, it's because it's the first stage that actually acknowledges and wants to include all of these previous stages, the integral stage itself is emerging out of sort of the entire spiral or rather, you know, out of the collapse of the entire spiral. So it's a little bit, we're not, integral is not pushing against green, pushing, it's, it's pushing against sort of these massive gaps that are opening up between all of these developmental levels. That's where sort of the integral roots, I think, can be found. And it's those roots that when this actually does come into its fullest ex expression, I think it's these roots that exist in these gaps between us that's actually going to start weaving 
things back together, allowing us to weave the world back together in a certain kind of sense. So it seems to me that, you know, all across the spiral and all four quadrants, we've got these accelerating life conditions. And I think that these life conditions really form sort of the overall context for today's call, as well as all of the conversations that we've been having. It's, it's why you and I have been doing this. It's, it's, it's why we do the work that we do to bring integral into the world. And I think it's, you know, it's, 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 why it's not only such a scary time to be alive right now, but also a really, really exciting time. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, Ken, um, you know, basically, do you see what I see? Are, are these, do you agree with sort of my assessment of, of, of how integral is really emerging out of not just, you know, this sort of layer of pathologies that we're seeing developmentally, but how did this entire, you know, kind of breakdown of the spiral itself? You raise this whole issue about um, couldn't integral be responding to the whole spiral in terms of deficits uh, along the whole thing. And that's certainly the case. Um, and at the same time, um, one of the problems is that whatever the acknowledged leading edge is supposed to be, then it should be operating in some of those problems. And for any number of complex reasons, and not just greens, but with green being at um, the leading edge of, of cultural evolution, for about five decades now, they have to assume, um, you have to take a special look at that, to assume a special responsibility for that. Just as at the previous stage when orange was the leading edge, it had to assume a type of responsibility for some of the nasty things occurred there. Right. Um, everything, um, seriously increasing uh, industrial pollution um, even missile crisis. I mean, um, those were all to some degree to uh, kind of the whole developmental sequence falling apart, but it was due especially to the way that the leading edge itself handled it. That's what leading edges are supposed to do. Right. In any evolutionary system, I mean, you see a little plant being born, and there's always a growing tip. And that growing tip is always trying to find ways. If it's like a seed that's planted under a pavement, everybody's seen, you know, seedlings pushing up through pavements. Um, but that's what growing tips do. And that's why Maslow referred to self-actualizing people as the growing tip of humanity, that mm -hmm. they were pushing forward into ways that have more freedom, more liberty, more fullness, more potentials, more capacities. Um, and that just is kind of an endless unfolding. Nobody's saying, oh, well, whatever stage we're at, the highest stage there is. No, that's not it at all. Um, but there is this increasing inclusiveness, increasing diversity in the true sense of the word. Um, and that's what each of the leading edges are supposed to do. 
And then when we got up to the leading edge of green, one of the main problems that green itself has is it's sometimes referred to as a pluralistic stage. Claire Graves, of course, called it a relativistic stage. And relativism is a nightmare for a leading edge because mm -hmm. it really can't make that it can commit to. And so um, nothing but a series of really bad performative self-predictions result from something like that. And so we really have been kind of set loose in a worldwide cultural atmosphere that doesn't have an assurance about certain very central values that it should be following. And so it, it, it proclaims all of them are egalitarian and therefore all cultures are equal or multicultural. Um, and there are no values in general that are better than any other values. And that's how they get by default at egalitarianism. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that green stage itself, when it says that all values need to be treated the same, itself means that that's the one correct way to look at things. Right. And so it has the one correct value when it says that all other values are equal, but it's really saying value is superior in a world where nothing is supposed to be superior. So that leaves it wide open to just an enormous number of uh, contradictory, uh, conflict-ridden, and in particular, um, confusing signals on how to go forward. And um, I, I'll come back to that, but in terms of what that does as a leading edge, is it, is it leaves essentially all of the earlier stages without a real coherent growing tip. They don't any really um, morphogenetic field coming down from on top and, and just nudging them in the essentially correct direction. And so what you get is runaway amber ethnocentric. What you get is runaway amber one, well, let me preface it by saying, because you're talking about the problems with the market system worldwide mm -hmm. and, and the difficulties that it creates. One of the major ways that green, or that um, orange actually divides the world up Amber divides the world into saints and sinners. Mm -hmm. Divides the world into winners and losers. And then green divides the world into sensitive and 
and sensitive. Mm. And the problem with orange, because the market system worldwide is essentially an orange value structure. And the main value that it has embedded in it is winner versus loser. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the, um, if you look at any of the sort of major criticisms about capitalism or something like that, is that it inculcates that type of intensely competitive winner versus loser uh, mentality. And the problem then becomes that because that market system is global, again, we don't have any regulatory capacities that can actually get in there and help smooth things out. And so one of the problems that if any country wants to introduce something, let's just about global warming. If one particular country wants to introduce real significant changes in its carbon footprint so that it either massively taxes it um, or other sort of punitive actions on that, including business, then what happens is that that country, although it can be considered noble, it immediately becomes less effective in the world marketplace. Mm -hmm. And a year or two later, it's going to be dead basically through no fault of its own. It's trying to do something noble. And so we don't have a system set up well that when one nation state does something that is good for the commons, but will hurt it economically. It's discouraged from even doing that. And in many cases won't. So even with the Paris Accords, where everybody, you know, all the countries in the world except two signed up for that. Um, and now the vast majority of them aren't anywhere near the goals that they promised. And look at Paris and Macron's increasing the gas tax to help drive uh, non-fossil fuel types of uh, energy and to help pay for the creation of, of green energy and they have the worst riots of anybody since uh, probably 1968. I mean, it's, it's really getting kind of crazy. So part of the difficulty is we have this global market driven by winning versus losing mentalities. And the, the problem is, and we'll talk a little bit about this more later in terms of what we can actually do, but the problem is how uh, can you tend to limit that without completely crushing the dynamism that does have some secondary positive benefits, mm -hmm. uh, as we talked about in, in really just the last couple of decades, uh, uh, overall percentage of poverty on planet Earth. Um, which in 1895 was about 95% of the population. And in 2015, it's officially less than 10%. Wow. 
That is the most stunningly positive thing yep. that happened to humanity in its history. Yep. It's unheard of what happened. And half that went down in the last two decades. Mm -hmm. So we do have all of these positive factors going on. And then we have all of these negative factors. And the point in any event is that none of those can be as understood as they can be if you use an integral framework. Um, and when we're talking about politics, well, if you actually look at what's going on in politics, then it can become very enlightening and very useful and really sort of spur ideas about how to take that forward. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to see, and some of the changes that we can talk about um, certainly include um, technological changes. And we talked about augmented human beings um, that um, or even keep talking about eventually coming upon a way that the human brain could do just directly communicate with computer and when that happens that could dramatically change everything but again the question is what type of value system are we going to hold that in? And one of the main value systems that we have is the one provided by evolution. And that shows up in human beings as development. And the thing about development is just as evolution itself went from atoms to molecules to cells to organisms just kept getting more and more unified more and more whole more and more inclusive that's what stages of human development do and that simply becomes increasing one of the most essential and important issues that human beings have to take into account when they select a set of values that they want to carry forward because that is a choice. We're doing that. We've made choices based on, you know, the full aqua framework. We've certainly made choices based on which basic level of development are we coming from. Each of those has very different value systems, but we want to be able to take those into account. And particularly where we see, for example, that each higher stage adds a perspective that a human being can take. So they do go from very egocentric or me oriented to more ethnocentric or us oriented, but it's still just my group versus all those other groups until you get up to world centric. And then it's a care and concern for all people, for all groups, for all tribes. Um, so a very simple but a absolutely central notion um, because again let's say if you're having a uh, a world federation and there is some sort of titular or or CEO of it however that might be selected 
would you want that person to have a third grade education or a 12th grade education? <laughs> and probably at least 12th grade, over a little bit higher. Yeah. We don't get up asking as a question. They, they make perfect sense to us. But again, strangely, somehow, in most developed countries, by the time you get to 18 and you've gone through 12 stages of increasing understanding and growth and development, and then all of a sudden you hit 12th grade, somewhere around age 17 or 18, and then absolutely everybody from that period on up is the same. No differences, nobody keeps growing, nobody keeps becoming more expansive and more inclusive and capable of embracing more diversity. We just stop. And then everybody is simply assumed to be exactly the same stage of inclusiveness or diversity, and they're not. And the problem with things like social justice warriors is that they understand the importance of these values like diversity and inclusion. But they don't see and they deny the stages of development that got their values in the first place. That's right. And so they're not helping. And they've actually hurt because they've denied all hierarchies entirely. And they don't see that growth hierarchies actually drive towards more diversity and more inclusivity. And dominator hierarchies do the opposite. Those are bad. But the only people that use dominator hierarchies are people at low stages of growth hierarchies. And people at high stages of growth hierarchies, they all condemn dominator hierarchies. So by tossing both of these out, you've tossed out the solution to dominator hierarchies. You simply have no way to get rid of them. Right. No understanding of the stages that lead to these things. So that's, that is where even the entire spiral that's inflamed, um, and particularly you have things like sort of kind of leaving out the whole mid West uh, population of this country um, as the elites on the coast sort of made the choices. And then this whole massive rebellion jumped up and voted in Trump because they were just completely being overlooked in terms of what these higher values are doing. I mean, nobody was addressing that issue. And frankly, We've done that so poor, I think we're lucky that we didn't get somebody much worse than Trump. Who's, who, who would that be? We were really asking for it. 